millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, May 8th, 2023, the 838th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms, and of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So what an exciting weekend of pomp and circumstance. Also, if you're American, who cares? There was a coronation in Great Britain. And now we have a new king of the world. Well, not the entire world, just, you know, 54 countries. Now, I personally think royalty is absolutely ridiculous. And I'm also not a big fan of pomp and circumstance. So watching royal coronations or royal weddings or royal funerals is not something I involve myself in because I find the whole thing preposterous. A bunch of people dressing up in really ridiculous manners to go out and pretend that they are anointed by the universe as king. 
I always find it odd that so many Americans love the gossip about the British royals and the pomp and circumstance of their ceremonies. They try to mimic them and their behavior. The whole thing is just so distasteful. I mean, the point of our country is that we don't want a king. But apparently some people like to be subjects. So people were watching all of that on Saturday as they placed the crown upon the head of King Charles. Here begins a new era, or something like that. It's important to remember who King Charles actually is, and the Prussiagate series, in their subseries Ode to the Prussian Pickle, does quite a good job of covering King Charles and his family's history. And they also point out this little speech right here that gives you a great idea of who King Charles is and what he represents in the big picture global regime. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us just how devastating a global cross-border threat can be. Climate change and biodiversity loss are no different. In fact, they pose an even greater existential threat to the extent that we have to put ourselves on what might be called a warlike footing. Having myself had the opportunity of consulting many of you over these past 18 months, I know you all carry a heavy burden on your shoulders, and you do not need me to tell you that the eyes and hopes of the world are upon you. To act with all dispatch and decisively, because time has quite literally run out. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here, we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Many of your countries, I know, are already feeling the devastating impact of climate change through ever-increasing droughts, mudslides, floods, hurricanes, cyclones and wildfires, as we've just seen on that terrifying film. Any leader who has had to confront such life-threatening challenges knows that the cost of inaction is far greater than the cost of prevention. So I can only urge you as the world's decision-makers to find practical ways of overcoming differences so we can all get down to work together to rescue this precious planet and save the threatened future of our young people. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So that was Charles speaking in late 2021 in Edinburgh, at the COP26 conference. And here's what Prussiagate had to add. 
Let's review some of the key phrases presented in this hair-raising speech. Warlike footing, a vast military-style campaign, marshalling the strength of the global private sector, with trillions at his disposal, far beyond global GDP. Today, according to the World Bank, global GDP stands at $91 trillion. Charles is inferring that there is someone else behind the scenes with the ability to transform the global economy and who has more money than global GDP. Everyone should be interested in knowing who he is. If the transition into Charles's plan for sustainability was necessary to save the planet, one would think it would be offered with a message of peace, love, and prosperity. The transition would simply be a proposal to make the world a better place. Instead, Charles brings a message of war. Charles's speech raises more questions than it answers. Who is this war against? Why is Charles so obsessed with engaging in a war about the Earth's climate? So that's all from Prussiagate, Ode to the Prussian Pickle, Part 5. I would honestly, I've said it many times, I would suggest that everybody get through all of Prussiagate. Whether you read it at prussiagate.substack.com or go to Rumble and find Patrick Gunnell's readings of Prussiagate, it is absolutely crucial and well worth your time. But the context here is explaining the history of the climate movement, its relationship to the depopulation agenda and eugenics, and part of a quest for complete and total world domination and control. So that's the man that many Americans are fawning over, his royalty, his highness. Let's look at their fancy costumes and all of their prancing horses. It was a bit of a weird ceremony in general, according to all reviews. Naomi Wolf wrote a great summary on dailyclout.io of all the strange details surrounding the event and how historically unusual they are. Joe Biden, the illegitimate president of the United States, did not make it to King Charles's coronation, but Jill did, and she got a seat all the way in the back. The entire thing honestly looked like a complete and total public degradation of the regime's power structure and the institution of royalty. And maybe I'm wrong about all this. I have very smart friends who think that royalty as an institution is acceptable under certain terms and that all of this might be a return to the royal structure under more proper terms. I don't agree with that. I think we are watching a global push toward the elimination of royalty. Royalty is necessarily a centralization of power, and we are in an age of vast decentralization. We are regularly seeing world leaders, regime world leaders, be publicly shamed in various ways and made to look ridiculous. And I think this is part of that trend. We talked last fall when the queen, quote unquote, died about how unusual all of that is. They had big media plans on how to cover it. There was an announcement of her death and then a retraction of that announcement. People said, hey, no, we're going to announce it later. You can't announce it already, even though it's happened. Perhaps they just wanted to pull that fact back from the world. We have a plan about how we're going to roll this whole death thing out. 
It's kind of weird, isn't it? And you might also remember that the queen appointed the new prime minister two days before the queen was reported to have died. That in itself is extraordinarily unusual. And that prime minister was out after not very long. There is something very strange going on with the crown, and I imagine it probably has something to do with how dark their history is and how the world is coming to know and reconcile all of that right now. Now, it has often been said that the Kennedys represent an American form of royalty, and we've talked extensively about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. over the last couple of months and his role in waking the American public, particularly the Democrat-affiliated side of the American public up to a bunch of important issues. Climate change, the vaccine agenda, and when the Democrat Party prevents him from winning the nomination or even perhaps participating in a primary at all. They've already said there's not going to be any debates. They're not going to put Robert F. Kennedy Jr. up there against Joe Biden in any public forum. I suppose it's at least possible that they cancel the presidential primary in full. And at that point, people are going to realize that elections in this country are rigged and they're going to see that maybe those Trump supporters aren't so crazy and aren't the bad guys. Maybe they're not domestic terrorists and maybe they're not very violent insurrectionists. And hopefully at that point, they will understand what the regime really is and what the regime really does. RFK Jr. may well wake these people up to the reality that the CIA and our intelligence community, our law enforcement community and their global partners are not working in America's benefit as if there was not enough proof. Most of us grew up understanding that. And then within the last 10 or 15 years, the concerted propaganda and censorship effort by the media and tech and by the regime in general has changed so many Americans' minds about that obvious basic fact. The intel community does not exist to keep us safe. The intel community exists to push the global regime's agenda forward. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was interviewed over the weekend by the owner of WABC Radio in New York, John Katsimatidis, and he said this about John F. Kennedy. I mean, I've never asked you this before. Who do you think really killed your uncle? Well, I think there's overwhelming evidence that the CIA was involved in this murder. I think it's beyond a reasonable doubt at this point. People, you know, who question that, I'll tell you the book, you know, a book that, that probably distills the millions of documents of evidence, including confessions of people who were involved in the crime and the, and the 60 year cover up. Um, the best kind of distillation of that is a book called The Unspeakable by Jim Douglas. So there's overwhelming evidence, according to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., that the CIA was involved in the murder of his uncle, John F. Kennedy. He says the evidence is overwhelming and beyond a reasonable doubt. Katsimatidis goes on to ask him if the same people involved in the assassination of JFK were involved with the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy, RFK Jr.'s father. And he responded that the evidence was convincing, but also 
circumstantial. So just a reminder of what we're dealing with when we talk about an institution like the CIA, and we will be discussing them, of course, a lot more. It's important to remember that the organization who assassinates presidents in the United States of America and other countries throughout the world overturning the leadership of those countries, staging coups and waging wars and, you know, maybe starting pandemics might, in fact, steal an election in the United States. It just is slightly possible that people who would assassinate presidents and overthrow other countries might involve themselves in election fraud or at least overlook election fraud and pretend it just can't be real. So we have an organization that will assassinate people who pose them a threat. John F. Kennedy said that he wanted to smash the intelligence community into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind. RFK Jr. has said the same. His father, Robert F. Kennedy, was on the same mission. And Donald Trump seems to be on the very same mission as well. One person who isn't, of course, is the fake president, Joe Biden. And one would think in a normal world, the CIA would have background on the people running for president and might tip us off. They might warn us if the person running for president is a corrupt career political criminal. But instead, what they do is find a group of 51 former intelligence officials to write a letter to America saying that absolutely none of that is true in order to allow that man to steal an election. This is from the New York Post yesterday. Miranda Devine, Joe Biden's bribery allegations were brought to the DOJ in 2018, two years before similar claims by whistleblower. Man, it seems like the CIA would have known about something like that. Explosive bribery allegations involving Joe Biden and foreign nationals were brought to the Department of Justice as early as 2018, two years before similar allegations against the president were made by the whistleblower, now talking to the House Oversight Committee. Bud Cummins, a former federal prosecutor, reported the bribery allegations to then New York U.S. Attorney Jeff Berman. On October 4th, 2018, in an email claiming he had evidence that Joe Biden had exercised influence to protect his son's Ukrainian employer, quote, in exchange for payments to Hunter Biden, Devin Archer and Joe Biden. Oh, wow. He's never discussed his business dealings with his son. He has no involvement whatsoever. In the email obtained by John Solomon's Just the News, Cummins said that Ukraine's then-Prosecutor General Yuri Lutsenko wanted to travel to the United States to meet Berman, who could produce two John Doe witnesses to corroborate his claims about the Bidens. But Berman never responded to the email. Instead, in a move Cummins says seemed like retaliation on December 9th, 2019, in the middle of impeachment proceedings against President Donald Trump, federal prosecutors secretly obtained data from Cummins' iPhone with a grand jury subpoena to Apple. I can't really imagine a reason for the DOJ not to follow up on an offer like that. I felt like it was stonewalled, said Cummins, formerly Arkansas's chief federal prosecutor under President George W. Bush. It doesn't make much sense to investigate the guy who brings you the allegation rather than the allegation, he said. 
when he received a notice from Apple last October telling him that his data had been accessed three years earlier, he said he found it perverse that you report an allegation of a pretty serious crime and they don't investigate it, but they were investigating you. Cummins' report was just one of a number of red flags raised with the DOJ between 2016 and 2020 about the Biden family influence peddling scheme. The FBI has had Hunter's abandoned laptop in its possession since December 2019, and Hunter's former business partner, Tony Bobolinsky, handed over the contents of his three devices and provided evidence of then-candidate Biden's involvement in his son's overseas business deals during a five-hour interview with the FBI days before the 2020 election. So now we've got the evidence on the laptop. It's all been sifted through and analyzed by Marco Polo. You can go read the report on the Biden laptop for yourself at marcopolousa.org or just type in hereshunter.com. You can see all of the evidence from the Hunter Biden laptop. We have information emerging constantly from whistleblowers and people testifying for whatever reason, like the CIA's own Mike Morrell talking about how he coordinated with Antony Blinken and these 50 other former intelligence officials to put together the letter claiming that Hunter Biden's laptop was a Russian disinformation effort specifically to give Biden a talking point for the debate where he denied any knowledge of Hunter Biden's business dealings and said that the laptop itself was Russian disinformation. It's been totally discredited. He said last week, we get the email chain of Morell talking with intelligence officials and the former CIA director under Obama, John Brennan himself, a coordinated effort to steal the election and rig the election for the fake president, Joe Biden. And now we're getting reports that they've all known about this for a very, very long time. That proof of the Biden family's corruption had been brought to the federal government multiple times. And yet the Bidens, from at least most indications, continue to walk free to the point where Joe gets to pretend to be president in front of everybody for years now. Many people are inclined to think that that means nothing's happening. But it's also totally possible that all of those people coming forward about the Biden family's corruption supplied the basis for an ongoing investigation. And the Biden family has been under investigation for pretty much all of that time. And it seems like we're beginning to see all the fruits of that work. This is Representative James Comer from Kentucky with Maria Bartiromo yesterday. My message to the Department of Justice is very loud and clear. Do not indict Hunter Biden before Wednesday when you have the opportunity to see the evidence that the House Oversight Committee will produce with respect to the web of LLCs, with respect to the number of adversarial countries that this family influence peddled in. This is not just about the president's son. This is about the entire Biden family, including the president of the United States. So we believe there are a whole lot of accounts that the IRS and the DOJ don't know about because we don't believe they've done a whole lot of digging in this. And we have. Uh, we've spent the past hundred days pouring 
over bank documents. I've used subpoena power to get these bank documents. We've been meeting with uh, former associates of the Bidens in their different influence peddling schemes. We've been meeting with whistleblowers. We know exactly uh, what this family was doing. And by all accounts from the, the media reports that we're getting, what they're looking at charging Hunter Biden on is a, is a slap on the wrist. It's a drop in the bucket. So Wednesday will be a very big day uh, for the American people in getting the facts presented to them so that they can know the truth. And then the Department of Justice can finally do what they should have done years ago. What? Well, obviously, the president's sons committed many crimes, many crimes. I mean, you're, you're looking at potential money laundering. Jonathan Turley comes on Fox all the time and talks about uh, he was essentially a foreign agent for countries like China. Uh, he's an unregistered foreign agent. They, you know, those are serious crimes. You've got the possible racketeering. I mean, the list goes on and on. And again, Maria, it's not just the president's son. And we don't believe these countries were paying the Biden family for nothing. We believe yeah. they were getting a return on their investment. And the return on the investment would have been policy decisions for then Vice President Joe Biden and current President Joe Biden. So James Comer is suggesting to the DOJ that they do not indict Hunter Biden before Wednesday, because on Wednesday, they're going to be presenting a lot of this evidence they have about the Biden crime family to the country. He's trying to head off a slap on the wrist indictment, letting them know that something much bigger is coming soon. And the slap on the wrist indictment is a theory that has been going around for a while. Obviously, the report on the Biden laptop lays out hundreds of potential criminal violations by the Bidens. But there's this notion that Hunter Biden might be indicted for some small tax violation, something relatively minor that is a crime, but isn't going to point directly to the idea that the entire Biden family has been involved in political corruption for decades upon decades. The thought is that Joe Biden would then pardon Hunter and then we would begin to deal with the fallout from that. And maybe this or that or the other thing leads to Joe Biden's impeachment or his removal via the 25th Amendment. All of that remains to be seen. I would expect that there will be at least one more rug pulled in this situation, if not many more rugs. So while all of this is progressing and it's all good news, don't get too attached to that little rug you're standing on because it's probably going to get pulled out from under you. There's also talk of all of this being used to pursue an impeachment of Joe Biden. And as I have said since the beginning, Joe Biden's not a legitimate president. The way to remove him is not through impeachment. And I'm not a big fan of the 25th Amendment either. I think that the election fraud should be fully exposed and Joe Biden should be removed because he is a usurper and has a decades long history of political corruption, and he may well be guilty of treason. All of these procedural measures assume that all of the normal procedures are still in place, and there's no reason to believe that's true. Texas Representative Pat Fallon also weighed in with Maria Bartiromo. 
what are you looking at in terms of the Biden family and this influence peddling? Well, Maria, yeah, the, the bank records are, are tell quite a tale because first and foremost, what did the Biden family ever provide? What business were they in exactly? What service or goods did they sell? It doesn't make a, a lot of sense. There's a tremendous amount of shell companies. There are uh, there's money coming from foreign, uh, really, you know, competitors in the United States and not our friends by any stretch. And uh, the Biden, the entire Biden family seems to be in on it. And there's 250 suspicious activity reports that this uh, that, that these folks generated from financial institutions. So there is uh, there's a lot of smoke. And we believe now that there's some fire, too. Well, this is just extraordinary. I mean, where is this going? Well, I think that there's you're going to see that uh, the DOJ did take it very uh, did, didn't do any digging and didn't really seriously investigate this. We have whistleblowers. We uh, Maria, we have a senior supervisory special agent from the IRS, highly credible source, telling us that the DOJ, in fact, came to Hunter Biden's defense. Uh, we also have a whistleblower from the that, that told that filled out an FD 1023 form with the FBI that they might have sat on claiming that there was a direct quid pro quo from Joe Biden himself. So we're trying to answer the question, is the president of the United States a national security risk and is he compromised? Uh, can you detail how much money the Biden family actually took in from from uh, adversaries? Oh, it's millions of dollars. And, and it doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm in business, Maria, you've been in business. Why do you have to set, set up a tremendous amount of shell companies and have people like Rob Walker, uh, you know, fight, wire the money and then break it up into tranches and then wire it to other shell companies and then further shell companies and then finally to the Bidens. They were trying to cover their tracks and didn't count on James Comer uh, subpoenaing the bank records. It was kind of an end around that worked uh, magnificently well, quite frankly. So all of this is coming to a head this week. And again, it could take another year and a half to play out. But the pressure is growing on the Biden family. The public is beginning to understand that the Biden family actually is this corrupt. Joe Biden did know about his son's foreign business dealings. He was involved. He did have conversations. He did profit from all this. The entire story otherwise has been a complete and total lie created by the Bidens and the regime, the CIA, etc. They really are all in on a cover-up of Joe Biden's decades-long career in political corruption. And the New York Post has been at the heart of quite a bit of that. They were the ones originally reporting on the existence of the Hunter Biden laptop in October 2020 and promptly proceeded to get banned by Twitter and other platforms. And there is some punishment headed the New York Post's way, as pathetic as that punishment might be. Today, the headline is White House bans the Post from Biden event as Hunter indictment looms about halfway down the article after they give the whole setup. In a Monday email, White House staff informed the Post, we are unable to accommodate your credential request to attend the investing in airline accountability remarks on 5-8. The remarks will be live streamed and can be viewed at wh.gov. Thank you for your understanding. We will let you know if a credential becomes available. So that's New York Post, one of the one of the oldest and most widely read newspapers in the country. 
The email does not claim that the exclusion is due to space limitations, an excuse that was used until recently to justify the press office's mysterious pre-screening of reporters led into large presidential events under which past administrations were open to all journalists on the White House grounds. In June 2022, 73 journalists representing nearly two thirds of the White House briefing room seats signed a letter demanding an end of the mysterious pre-screening process for events. But the unprecedented access restrictions have remained in place and press officials refuse to explain the criteria for selection to leaders of the White House Correspondents Association. And despite that, the Biden administration maintains its position that they are, in fact, the most transparent administration in U.S. history. Another thing we are seeing coming to the fore this week is the issue of the debt ceiling. We discussed how the Republicans in the House put forward their own bill to raise the debt ceiling for a year and also claw back all of the planned spending that resulted from the omnibus bill passed in December with a lame duck Congress before the term finished. The illegitimate White House is supposed to be negotiating with House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy tomorrow, and they're trying to exercise whatever leverage possible to get McCarthy to agree to pass a clean raise of the debt ceiling, meaning that they would just put up a bill that says the debt ceiling is raised, pass that bill, and then the fake president would sign it, the debt ceiling would be raised, and we will just go on with all that spending. Kevin McCarthy has said that that is not how things are going to go. And so they're going to negotiate that in terms of leverage and other options that the illegitimate White House might have. We talked last week about Paul Krugman's article on how they should mint a trillion dollar platinum coin and just spend that. That would fix the problem of the debt ceiling increase. And they're also talking about invoking the 14th Amendment. This is from the Washington Post today. Biden aides see major risks in circumventing Congress on the debt ceiling. Now, in what sort of society would a leader attempt to circumvent Congress in order to pursue their agenda? Well, of course, a Biden administration, including the one where he was vice president with Barack Obama, they love circumventing Congress. But in a normal functioning system, circumventing Congress is not an option. The Congress is meant to represent the closest relationship with the people. They are there to represent their constituents. They're not supposed to be circumvented. Our whole system of checks and balances is designed to prevent circumventing other branches of government by the executive, particularly when that executive is unelected. But here's the Washington Post. Senior White House officials see enormous risks in trying to resolve the debt ceiling impasse without Congress. Viewing the unilateral measures floated by some academics only as emergency measures of last resort, according to three people with knowledge of internal conversations. As they have for months, Biden aides have recently been evaluating a wide range of proposals for acting on the debt limit without the consent of Congress, particularly by invoking the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to declare the limit unconstitutional and keep borrowing to pay bills even if the cap isn't raised. But internally, 
Advisors view the options as risky choices that could cause lasting economic damage, the people said, speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss private conversations. White House aides do not want to take proposals completely off the table. If the federal government actually can't borrow more, the United States could be in uncharted territory with no clear way to avoid calamity, which would make extreme measures more appealing. But administration officials are adamant that Congress must act to raise the debt limit, believing this is the only sure way to avoid financial turmoil. Since the debt ceiling fights that began during the Obama administration, some legal experts have argued that the White House can ignore Congress and simply declare the borrowing limit to be incompatible with the 14th Amendment, which says, quote, the validity of the public debt authorized by law shall not be questioned, end quote. Under this theory, the Treasury Department could keep borrowing money past the limit, issuing federal debt to keep government operations funded. The administration would argue that Congress had approved two irreconcilable laws, the debt ceiling, and then later measures that require spending in excess of the limit. So basically, the theory here is that the measures passed by Congress to create the debt ceiling, the debt limit, don't matter if later Congress passes spending bills that exceed the debt limit. Back to the post. Other unilateral proposals studied internally but taken less seriously include issuing bonds that never mature and therefore technically don't count against the borrowing limit or minting a $1 trillion platinum coin to be deposited at the Federal Reserve. But administration officials think these kind of moves could backfire dangerously. Any option to act without Congress would probably be subject to immediate legal challenge by Republicans as an overreach of executive authority. No matter what the merits of the debate are, Biden officials fear that investors would demand much higher interest rates to buy government debt that the courts could throw out since prospects for repayment would be unclear. That could lead federal borrowing costs to spike, as well as drive up rates for other loans, and it could still lead to the same broader panic in financial markets that it is intended to avoid administration officials fear, and the article goes on. So they're trying to come up with all these very creative ways that will allow them to continue spending at the rates they have chosen, despite the fact that they are going to blow through the debt ceiling. And we are all being told that they have to be able to do this because if they can't do this, the whole thing is going to fall apart. And yes, all of that is meant to sound threatening so the people will go along with it, but it's also worth taking them seriously when they say the whole thing's going to fall apart. It's just not the whole thing in the way they're describing it. Their whole thing is going to fall apart if they can't keep spending above the debt limit, if they don't have that debt limit raised. But everything else is going to be just fine. Donald Trump's director of the Office of Management and Budget, Russ Vaught, appeared on War Room this morning to get to the bottom of this debt deal. And the lead in here is George Stephanopoulos interviewing Janet Yellen. 
He said on Friday night that he's not ready to invoke the 14th Amendment. Of course, the 14th Amendment says that full faith and credit of the United States should not be questioned. And the implications of that would be if he invoked it is the United States would just continue to issue debts saying it's unconstitutional not to. Now, the president said he's not ready to do that, but it didn't seem like he took it off the table. So is it still a possibility? Look, you know, our priority is is to make sure that Congress does its job. There is no way to protect um, our financial system and our economy other than Congress doing its job and raising the debt ceiling and enabling us to pay our bills. And we should not get to the point where we need to consider whether the president can go on uh, issuing debt. This would be a constitutional crisis. But do you? But is it on the table? Is it something that could be considered? Are you saying you just said there's no way this can be done without Congress? Is that a hard and fast position that the president will, under no circumstances, invoke the Fourteenth Amendment? Look, I, all I want to say is that it's Congress's job to do this. If they fail to do it, we will have an economic and financial catastrophe that will be of our own making. And um, there is no action that President Biden uh, and the U.S. Treasury can take to prevent that uh, catastrophe. I'm still not exactly clear on, on whether it's on the table or off the table. Is it a break glass in case of emergency option? Look, I, I don't I don't want to consider emergency options. Um, what's important is that members of Congress recognize what their responsibility is and um, avert what will surely be, regardless of how it's handled, what option is used to handle it, um, an economic and financial catastrophe. It sounds like you're saying you don't want to, but you may have to. Well, what to do if Congress fails to meet its responsibility. There are simply no good options. And the ones that you've listed are among the not good options. Okay, the Financial Times Gazette's lead, constitutional crisis, Russ Vote. we're asking you, have we got the rats cornered now? They're talking about printing trillion-dollar platinum coins, and, uh, and they're going to invoke the 14th Amendment, sir. We could not have them in a more uh, difficult position for their interest and to be able to deal with the fiscal house that we have right now and using the debt limit as an opportunity to get after the spending and the recklessness that we have seen for many, many years. And I think it's important to simplify this debate. And you, you've seen that over the course of the week, and they're the ones that are saying that we are headed towards a constitutional crisis. On this, we are not. This is a, a typical debt limit standoff. And so when they talk about invoking the 14th Amendment, simply put, they are talking about ignoring the law. There is nothing under the 14th Amendment that allows them to ignore the debt limit. And even Larry Tribe, who's the Harvard uh, uh, law professor that they use and they trot out at moments like this, he, he put out the trial balloon over the weekend. And he, even he said, this is ignoring the law, but we should do it anyways. So when you hear 14th Amendment invoking that, simply put, it's ignoring the law. Their other option is to talk about a, tr a platinum coin, a trillion dollar platinum coin. All of that is to simplify the debate, it's printing money. And so there you have these two kind of 
uh, invoke these options. Think of them in the economic space as in, in this version of a nuclear option, and, and the left wants them to use it. And as a result, you know, we've got to plow through and be able to ex- comprehend and explain to the world what is being t- talked about. One has endless in- inflation potential in the in the in the midst of high inflation, and the other one, you have an incredibly weak pr- president that's going to take a, this this post-constitutional world that we live in and dramatically go and hit the gas in ways that they don't have the option to. And I would just remind the left, when you did this on Harry Reid, when Harry Reid took the nuclear option as it pertained to judges and executive appointees, look where that got you. So I think it, the, the order of the day is heading into tomorrow's big meeting with, with uh, Biden and the congressional leaders. They're going to want to make this about a summit. This is the regrouping of the cartel. This really is just about a negotiating between Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. They're going to want to reconstitute the cartel in a way that is not in our interest. And McCarthy's got to do a good job of saying, I'm negotiating with Biden. Schumer, you have no role to play because you haven't passed a bill. We've got to put aside all of these fake options that are really just very simply ignoring the law or printing money. And then we've got to get you to the point where you realize you have to pass our bill. And if you don't pass the bill, you have a very simple option and the authority to do one thing, pay treasury and interest on those treasuries. We will not have a default. You may not timely pay every grant at the NIH. You may not timely pay everything at the Department of Education, but we will not have default. And we've got to be able to comprehend and explain what's going on this week so that the American people uh, understand the stakes. Russ, vote. Uh, Mike Lee led an effort, an amazing, I think, letter. Not perfect. Nothing's perfect. The, the deal on the table is not perfect. But, hey, directionally, we're trying to get there. But the Senate sent a very loud signal, and Mitch McConnell let this be sent. You're not going to get an out here with us. You deal with McCarthy, and you deal with the uh, the ultra-maga extremists. Russ, vote your thoughts. It was a really important letter, and what it said was that to the extent that Biden thought that this get-out-of-jail card would be played by Senate Republicans, they put that to rest, and they said, we're sticking with the House. And this negotiation is between Biden and the House, and tomorrow is probably not going to go well. Tomorrow's going to have a little bit of circus feel to it, because they're going to try to see whether they can just provoke as much fear and confrontation a couple more times before they realization sets in that they actually have to come to the table and negotiate. So that's my expectation for tomorrow. You'll have a lot of uh, flailing by Senator Schumer who wants to be relevant, wants to be part of this, doesn't really trust the White House that they're going to be able to hold strong. So Janet Yellen is totally unable to answer the question about whether or not they're going to invoke the 14th Amendment, which again would cause problems. There would be lawsuits filed immediately to prevent that from happening. And it's likely that they would be successful. In fact, it may be worth it for them to do that so that the lawsuits can happen and we get a ruling on whether or not the White House is allowed to do that sort of thing when they want to raise the debt limit. Maybe they'll figure out some way to get this one raised for a time and use that whole 14th Amendment thing later. But every one of their options is ridiculous and desperate and They're doing all this so that they don't lose the ability to fund programs like the ones Russ Vaught mentioned, like grants to the NIH or payments to the Department of Education. 
We are not in danger of default. We're not in danger of economic collapse if we hit the debt ceiling without a raise. The administration is in danger. The bureaucracy is in danger of being unfunded, which is something that I imagine at this point, most of the country is probably in favor of. Now, there's a lot going on in Georgia over the next few weeks. There's a GOP meeting on June 10th, and apparently that meeting and the Georgia GOP from that meeting on are going to be fully overwhelmed by MAGA. The Georgia GOP will just be MAGA from that point on, from June 10th on. And in response to that, word is that Georgia politicians like Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, all of them rhinos, are looking to set up some sort of alternative GOP in Georgia because they don't want to be part of this whole new MAGA thing. They need a different party in Georgia if MAGA takes over the GOP to represent the establishment and the uniparty right. We also have happening in Georgia the get Trump effort by Fannie Willis. Margot Cleveland has a great article in The Federalist today. Defense attorneys allege massive misconduct in Georgia's crumbling get Trump crusade. At least eight Trump electors have accepted immunity in Georgia investigation. Headlines uniformly blared on Friday. The legacy outlets echoing that narrative, however, buried the lead, which is that Fulton County's Get Trump district attorney can't even find incriminating evidence against the former president when she grants immunity to targets of her criminal investigation. A strong secondary story also ignored or downplayed by the left wing media reveals multiple incidents of alleged misconduct by the DA's office. The attorney representing eight Republicans targeted by the Fulton County D.A. filed a scathing response on Friday to the D.A. office's motion to disqualify her from continued representation of her clients. Kimberly Debrow's 28-page response detailed several previously unknown instances of questionable conduct by prosecutors targeting Donald Trump, his lawyers, and several high-profile Georgia Republicans. And contrary to the misleading headlines of the last several days, DeBrow revealed that none of the eight individuals granted immunity, quote, said anything in any of their interviews that was incriminating to themselves or anyone else. Now, you might have seen these headlines last week. Fannie Willis grants immunity to eight Trump electors. Oh, now that they have immunity they can say all the things that Donald Trump really did because before that they were worried about going to jail themselves. That's what those headlines were meant to communicate. And none of that is true. Now the article's a bit long, so I encourage you to read it on your own if you like, but it's important to clear up yet another one of these stories, these ridiculous narratives only supported by headlines for the purpose of convincing people that Trump is really in trouble, everybody knows that the election was not stolen, and that the walls really are closing in. So regarding the immunity, while not identifying which of the 11 electors the DA would offer immunity to, 
Wade represented that the DA was prepared to offer full immunity from prosecution for any acts taken related to the December 14th, 2020 meeting at the Georgia State Capitol to execute purported electoral college votes in favor of former President Donald J. Trump and former Vice President Michael R. Pence. Again, that's not something that is just inherently illegal at all. In response, Pearson and Debrow wrote to each of their clients, explained the existence and implications of the potential immunity offers and noted whether a conflict of interest existed because the lawyers represented all 11 electors, but the DA would only be offering some of them immunity. The defense attorneys gave their clients a follow up 13 page single spaced memo that comprehensively detailed the issues and then spoke with each client individually. All 11 electors opted to continue with joint representation and rejected the DA's suggestion of immunity. The mainstream media presented all of these people as partially guilty of what Trump is fully guilty of in regards to overthrowing the safest and most secure election of all time. Back to Margot Cleveland. At the time, the defense attorneys informed both the court and the DA's office of their client's decision, noting first their fundamental distrust of the motives and intentions of the DA and the investigative team in this case, and, quote, their perception that this investigation into their lawful conduct is not based on or even interested in the facts or the law, but instead is politically motivated. The defense counsel further noted their clients had grave concerns that if they testified truthfully, quote, that neither they nor the other electors committed any illegal act or engaged in any sort of conspiracy with regard to the 2020 election, the DA and your team would not accept that truth, end quote. The electors thus feared prosecutors would, quote, charge them with perjury or false statements to law enforcement officials or similar after their truthful, immunized testimony merely because the immunized witness is not in a position to tell the DA's office or the grand jury the story they want to hear. Skipping down a bit. During Wade's questioning, DeBrow claims he attempted to mislead and confuse her clients by suggesting the DA's office had previously made an actual offer of immunity in late 2022, as opposed to merely floating the potential for an immunity deal. In one case, DeBrow detailed how, when she attempted to clarify for her client Wade's misleading questions, the prosecutor threatened to leave, rip up the immunity agreement, and indict the elector. So essentially, these people are being completely railroaded, and they've been presented to the public as being involved in some sort of criminal conspiracy. DeBrow told the court that, quote, none of the interviewed electors said anything in any of their interviews that was incriminating to themselves or anyone else, end quote, meaning they also had not implicated Trump, his lawyers, or any of the other potential targets of Willis's criminal investigation. That fact was lost on the reporters, however, who since Friday have focused instead on the mere fact that the eight electors had accepted immunity agreements, implying that meant they had dirt to dish. Ignoring the real story. The corporate media were likewise content to ignore the allegations of serious misconduct. Those included Willis's misrepresentation to the court about whether the elector's attorney had informed them of the prior immunity discussion and Wade's alleged attempt to mislead and intimidate one of the witnesses by threatening to indict him. 
Wade's involvement here is particularly ironic, given that a Fulton County judge held the special prosecution team could no longer investigate one of the electors, then state Senator Burt Jones, because Willis had hosted and headlined a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, a Democrat seeking to challenge Jones in the general election for lieutenant governor. Wade, like Willis, had donated to Bailey's campaign. Noteworthy, too, is Wade's work with Willis, as Wade was a private attorney whom Willis specifically hired to work on 2020 election investigations. Willis bringing on a pit bull to further her get Trump efforts smells disgustingly similar to Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's use of outside special assistant district attorneys, including three from a high powered Democrat connected law firm to help find a way to indict Trump. Also appalling is the attempt by Willis's office to force Debrow off the case, a tactic sadly seen sometimes when a prosecutor proves unable to manipulate a witness into saying what the government wants. The trial court has yet to rule on the Fulton County DA's motion to disqualify Debrow, and maybe there will be something more of concern that the prosecutor omitted from the motion. But the detailed excerpts included in DeBrow's response appear to doom Willis's attempt to force the electors to hire new attorneys. And if, as DeBrow's represented, the electors said nothing incriminating to themselves or anyone else, much more of the Fulton County DA's case is likely doomed too. And so this brings to mind something I was thinking about earlier this morning. I may do an episode more just revolved around this idea. But it is amazing how often we are given what seems like and honestly feels like bad news by the mainstream media that we end up finding out is actually just good news for us that they are trying to reimagine for the rest of the public, their audience, the villagers out there, the people who are going to believe the headlines, whatever they say all over Twitter on Friday were people talking about how this means that Trump is screwed. These electors who were involved in this conspiracy to overthrow the election in Georgia have accepted immunity deals, meaning that they committed crimes. They know they've committed crimes, but they're going to take this immunity deal so they can talk about these crimes without themselves being prosecuted. And that, of course to people who don't know anything, means that everyone is guilty up to and including Donald Trump and his effort to overturn the results of a free and fair 2020 election. That's finally going to catch up with him. He's going to be so screwed. We heard him on the phone asking for 11,780 votes. He was trying to get them to break the law, except he wasn't. And you can just listen to that entire phone conversation. There are lawyers on the phone the whole conversation was totally normal. Donald Trump was asking Brad Raffensperger to choose one of the batches of obviously illegal votes and let the public know that this batch was obviously illegal. This is more than enough votes to overturn the reported result of this election. And Donald Trump is the true winner. Raffensperger could have done that. The evidence was there and Donald Trump was well within his rights. In fact, it is his sworn duty to pursue these sorts of claims in the event 
that there is an active attempt to usurp the presidency of the United States of America. I went back and listened on Saturday to Donald Trump's speech from December 2nd, 2020, where he took 45 minutes and outlined all of the claims of fraud. And he discussed what was being done about it. And he discussed what needed to happen. At one point in that speech, he said very clearly, if we are right about the fraud, Joe Biden can't be president. And everybody just pretended that either Donald Trump was wrong about the fraud, which he isn't, or that he was using the word can't somehow figuratively, like he just didn't really mean it from the office of president with all of the evidence of election fraud. And you damn well better believe they have it. I don't know how anybody thinks that the evidence of election fraud isn't obvious and overwhelming just from what's in the public. But the idea that Donald Trump and military intelligence weren't able to track that election is insane. And I've said this many times, but there is no way in the world that world leaders like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and others believe that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. No one believes that because it's ridiculous. And just like the stories that the mainstream media put out about the Georgia electors and these immunity deals, they ran a bunch of headlines at the end of last week about how Carrie Lake had been sanctioned in her lawsuits in Arizona. And the story was Carrie Lake is in big, big trouble for lying in all of her lawsuits because everybody knows that there was no election fraud in Arizona. And now the courts are agreeing and punishing Carrie Lake. The BBC said Carrie Lake's lawyers fined for false claims about Arizona election. The Guardian. Carrie Lake's lawyers find over false factual statements on election. NBC News, Carrie Lake's lawyers sanctioned over false election claims. And it just went on and on. But that wasn't the issue. And all of that news, those headlines that look like bad news and seem like bad news and feel like bad news, just existed to distract from what was actually good news. The Gateway Pundit reported on this. On Saturday, the headline is Maricopa County Superior Court order set status conference Monday to consider Carrie Lake's signature verification fraud challenge and potentially more. That's all good news. The Maricopa County Superior Court has set Monday, May 8th for a status conference in Carrie Lake's election lawsuit following the Arizona Supreme Court's remand and a new motion for status conference by Lake's legal team. So that's all happening this afternoon in Arizona. They're pursuing these claims over the ballot signatures and the process by which those signatures are reviewed. We've covered this extensively with Kerry Lake's lawsuit, with Abraham Hamaday's lawsuits. They basically have an automated system where an AI checks to see if the signatures are the same, and they essentially send everyone through with a rating of red or yellow or green, that is supposed to indicate how much the two signatures match. And so if they're yellow or green, the human then looks at that and says, yep, it matches. The machine says it matches, it matches. And they processed an extraordinary number of ballots that way in a time that would make any legitimate processing of those signatures and any signature matching actually impossible. 
they show some of the examples in the article, the signatures are not even close to matching and still went through and the vote still counted. As the Gateway Pundit previously reported, the Arizona Supreme Court ruled in Lake's favor and remanded the erroneously dismissed signature verification fraud count back to the trial court for further review. However, Maricopa County still refuses to allow her legal team or We the People Arizona Alliance to review ballot affidavit signatures from the 2022 election. Here's what happened last week. The Arizona Supreme Court finalized its proceedings, confirming a previous order for the trial court and issuing bogus, meaningless sanctions for Lake's attorneys over their factual claims. Attorneys for Lake then filed a motion for status conference to expedite the Maricopa County Superior Court's review. So Carrie Lake and her lawyers and that lawsuit are still marching forward with the ballot signature review process still to come. Consider how irresponsible it is for the mainstream media to tell all of the villagers that they have even more reason to understand that the Arizona election is okay, Carrie Lake is a liar, and there is absolutely nothing to worry about in this case. Unless you're Carrie Lake, who's going to get sent off to the gulag or something. Robert Barnes broke it down on his podcast with Viva Fry. Now, you talk about fake news. Uh, there was probably no bigger fake news this week than what they tried to report about the Supreme Court's decision, Arizona Supreme Court's decision in Carrie Lake's case. So just because I got confused about the procedure because they had already rendered their decision, which said one claim goes back. There's an outstanding we're going to discuss legal fees or extrajudicial costs. What order came down this week that wasn't already the one that had come down previously? And why is Mark Elias uh, not reporting on it accurately? That's a joke. But uh, what's interesting is all the media headlines, mainstream media headlines, was Arizona Supreme Court sanctions Carrie Lake's lawyer for making fraud claims without proof. That didn't happen. Just flat out, it was just flat out lie, flat out fraud by Arizona newspapers, national media, legal comment commenters. I mean, no surprise Mark Elias, the, the, the criminal money launderer for the Clinton family, was out there lying about it. But, the, uh, but the, the amazing, and so I put out a couple of tweets, and then I just said, here's what an honest headline would be. The honest headline is the Arizona Supreme Court ruled that the trial court is to take up forthwith uh, her signature verification challenge, rejected all attorney's fees sanctions request, rejected all other sanctions request, and simply ordered a $2,000 court fee for, the, for what the court, Supreme Court considered the misuse of the word undisputed. It didn't say any claim that Carrie Lake made was without evidentiary proof. It didn't say any claim Carrie uh, Lake's lawyers made was without a legal basis. It didn't say, in fact, it said just the opposite. It didn't say any claim Carrie Lake's lawyers made was a false or fraudulent claim. So the courts and commentators were just making that up. And they were trying to elevate a $2,000 court fee for the misattribution of the word undisputed, which is a procedural term of art, uh, as somehow big sanctions award. What had happened was the trial court had deliberately delayed proceedings in the signature verification using the pretext that the Arizona Supreme Court hadn't yet ruled on the sanctions, even though there was nothing holding them back on that, in my view. 
in my view, that the trial court was probably hoping the Arizona Supreme Court would give him more cover by saying a bunch of nasty things about Kerry Lake's lawyers, and he got just the opposite. And so now he's he's actually scheduling a immediate hearing on our signature verification challenge. So basically, the story is the complete and total opposite of what the media presented, and it's easy to see why. The ballot signature review process is going to begin, and the ballot signatures don't match. And the process itself is a mess. This is just the news from today. Ballot signature matching system in Maricopa County is, quote unquote, almost illegal, says longtime FBI expert. As Kerry Lake's lawsuit returns to the trial court for consideration of alleged violations of Maricopa County's signature verification rules in the Arizona 2022 general election, a retired FBI counterintelligence agent with longtime expertise in signature analysis says that matching ballot signatures with little time to review is almost illegal. If election workers have a limited amount of time to review signatures on early ballots to ensure they match with voters' files, it's, quote, almost illegal to have it work that way, said retired FBI agent Wayne A. Barnes, adding, almost pathetic. Barnes, a 29-year FBI veteran who mastered signature analysis while unmasking Soviet spies during the Cold War, previously wrote a report commissioned by Just the News that found that the signature on the receipt from the Delaware repair shop where Hunter Biden left his laptop was a match for the signature of President Biden's son. The retired FBI agent's comments on signature verification followed a development in Lake's legal challenge to her defeat in the 2022 gubernatorial race. On Thursday, the Arizona Supreme Court ordered the trial court to conduct proceedings forthwith to resolve Lake's challenge to Maricopa County's alleged violations of its signature verification practices in the election while granting one punitive sanction but denying attorney's fees requested by the defendants. Barnes, who has previously helped with ballot signature verification in Orlando, Florida, told Just the News on Friday that election workers aren't given enough time to check if signatures are matching. Signature verification requires, quote, at least four to five signatures that are valid and not questionable in order to compare signatures to determine if the signature in question is valid, he explained. In Arizona, signature verification is required for early ballots so that voters' signatures on the ballot envelopes can be checked against signatures on voters' files to ensure they match. There is no ID requirement when casting an early ballot. While election workers verifying signatures are usually given training, the retired FBI agent said that signature verification isn't something that a person can easily be trained to do the way he has been doing it for 45 years. And the article goes on. So what do we have? We have a very small $2,000 fee charged to the lawyers because of an improper wording in a filing. They refer to a particular fact as undisputed and the defense says, no, that fact actually is in dispute. And Kerry Lake's lawyers misrepresented that to the court. Hence the $2,000 fee. The entire media went wide with that story, making it seem like Kerry Lake and her lawyers were just lying about the whole thing. That's not what happened at all. And the signature process is going forward. Not only is the process for checking signatures in Maricopa County 
under review and question because the signature checking process is invalid and incapable of producing accurate results in order to verify that the ballots are coming from real, lawful American voters who did in fact vote that ballot under review. And the results of that process are also in question because the ballot signatures don't match. It's getting to the point where when I see headlines that make it seem like everything is falling apart for us, I actually just smile and think, wow, they are getting really desperate. They're trying to make people believe this. How long is anyone going to believe this for? A day, a couple of days, a few weeks, a few months? Whenever the results actually come out and this story gets turned around completely, all of this nonsense that they have told their readers is going to blow up in their faces and they will continue to lose more trust among their readership. If you see everyone online posting headlines and saying, oh, we've got you now, that should be a pretty strong indication that something really bad is actually happening for them and they want to make sure nobody knows. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. 
It's hell!